Hello and welcome to the Plus One to Intelligence podcast. My name is Noah. And I'm Sim. And today we're going to be doing a Brothers Grimm episode. Starting off, we're going to go with the tale Our Lady's Child, and we are reading from the original Grimm's fairy tales translated by Margaret Hunt. And this is printed by the Canterbury Classics out of San Diego. Um, so Our Lady's Child. So the tale starts off in pretty rough fashion, as many Grimm's fairy tales do. It starts with a woodcutter and his wife, and they have a little girl, and she's grown up to the age of three. So, still very young. But the woodcutter and his wife are so poor that they can't afford to feed this child. The woodcutter is just brokenhearted over this. And so one morning, he goes out to his work in the forest, and while he's working at chopping down trees, he's approached by none other than the Virgin Mary. She's described as being a beautiful woman with a crown of shining stars on her head. So she walks out of the forest and she's like, don't worry, it's me, your girl, Virgin Mary, (laughs) and I am here to take care of your child that you can't take care of. Bring the child to me here in the forest and I'll take care of her and you'll be able to feed you and your wife without trouble. And the woodcutter thinks this is a pretty good deal. And so he goes back home, he grabs his baby daughter, and he brings her into the woods. Virgin Mary is still there, and so the Virgin Mary takes the baby girl, takes her up to heaven, and there she fares well, eats sugar cakes and drinks sweet milk, and is clothed in clothes all made of gold, and plays with the little angels. So, (laughs) there you go. That's the start of our tale. That's all in, like, the first paragraph. So... Is this, like, based off of, like, Catholic ideology? (laughs) Like, where does... She just, like, shows up in the forest? Yes. So, like, old 1800s Germany, 1805 or so, when the Brothers Grimm are writing these tales, Germany is extremely Catholic. In fact, I think they're even still considered part of, if not, like, the heartland of the Roman Catholic Empire, even at that time. Um, It's only, like, fairly recently that we've kind of fallen out of nations becoming more powerful simply by allying themselves with the church and that used to be a huge thing back in the day so like the bloody queen mary in england the reason she was named bloody mary was because she was i can't remember now but either catholic or protestant she was catholic and her father had changed to protestant so that he could divorce her mother and marry a new wife i actually just watched a video on this yesterday yes Um, yes and so so basically yeah so she was like stripped of her princess level stuff Mm -hmm. and then basically i think almost for for like a very long part of her life uh she lived not as a princess but not quite as a servant yeah in a very like uh rough situation she also had like endometriosis or something like yeah she had some weird like health condition that they just didn't know about at the time but yeah so when she came back into power she tried to convert the country back to catholicism and everyone who had been protestant she was trying to burn yep at the stake more or less Yep, pretty rough. So, she had a lot of hate for anyone who wasn't like on her side the whole time. Yeah, she was super into the whole Catholic purity thing and killed a lot of people over it. So there you go, Bloody Mary, and that's that's not too far away from the Brothers Grimm. That's I think Bloody Mary is actually closer historically speaking to the Brothers Grimm than we are in 2022 here. So allies of the Church at the time. Being an ally of the church like gives you a lot of political and military power because now you have the uh, Catholics on your side, and that means that Catholics from any country are going to join you. Like 
this straight up caused some of the crusades and stuff like people wanting to be on the side of the catholic church and have the pope backing their reign basically and the uh the brothers Grimm knew about this stuff and so yes there's definitely a, a lot of catholic influence in the german tales because germany for a long time was definitely on the Catholic train uh, and didn't get some of the Protestant ideas that were flourishing in Britain and then later in the Americas at the time. So yes, you're going to see a lot of Catholic stuff like this. The Virgin Mary specifically will show up quite often in some of these Grimm's fairy tales. Anyway, this poor little girl gets uh, disowned by her parents and left in the woods to die. Luckily, God's providence intervenes. The Virgin Mary shows up takes the uh, girl into heaven and uh, the infanticide is portrayed as don't worry she just went to heaven to live with the Virgin Mary uh, so very convenient anyway she is living in heaven she's eating sugar cakes drinking sweet milk she's clothed in gold sounds awesome right well the Virgin Mary one day comes up to the girl and says I have to go on a trip and it's gonna be several days and she gives the girl a ring of 13 keys and these 13 keys go to the 13 doors in heaven. And the Virgin Mary explains that she is allowed to open the first 12 doors of heaven with the first 12 keys. But this last key, and she specifically points this key out, do not use this key to open up the 13th door. If you do, you've sinned, and bad things will happen. It'll, it'll go badly for you, she says. Feel free to open up the other doors. Doesn't matter. You'll be blessed by the experience. Good luck. Have fun. I'm going on a trip. And so the Virgin Mary leaves. And so every day, this little girl, who I believe has grown up a little bit by now and is now 14 years old. Yes, I believe by now the girl is now 14 years old. Um, so a little bit, a little bit older than the three-year-old child that got dropped off at the beginning. So this 14-year-old girl, day by day, opens up the 12 doors, and inside are the 12 apostles, one apostle behind each door, and they're surrounded by glory of heaven, and they're preaching, and so she can go in, and she can enjoy the company of the apostles, and it's a grand old time. But eventually, she gets through all the doors, and she's like, man, I really want to go inside this 13th door, and the little angels that she plays with are like, don't do it, and she's like, well, what if I just, like, unlock it and peek through the keyhole, and they're like, don't do it, it won't work, and so the angels are warning her. And she's like, fine, I, I won't. And then the angels go off and they start playing by themselves. And while the little girl is sitting by herself, she's like, you know what, the angels aren't here, it doesn't matter, I'll just take a quick peek, it'll be fine. So she unlocks the door and immediately it springs wide open and inside she sees, no joke, the Trinity wreathed in fire. And so she's like, oh wow, that's more than I was expecting. And as she reaches out to grab the door, the light from the fire of the Trinity falls on her pinky finger, and it turns into solid gold. And she's scared by this, so she grabs the door, closes it immediately, and relocks it. The very next day, the Virgin Mary shows up, back from her trip. And she's like, did you open up the 13th door? And the girl's like, no, absolutely not, why would I do that? And the Virgin Mary looks her in the eyeball and is like, you totally opened up the 13th door. So the Virgin Mary puts her hand on her heart and feels her heartbeat and asks her again, did you open up the 13th door? And the girl's like, what? No, why would I do that? And her heart starts beating faster. And so the Virgin Mary knows, and she says, you're lying. You opened up the 13th door. And the girl's like, absolutely not. I am not a horrible person. I would not do that. And the Virgin Mary looks down and sees the golden pinky finger, and she's like, yep, you definitely did it. 
And the girl's like, nope, for the third time. She says no, and she denies what she did. So the Virgin Mary has her cast out of heaven down into a desert, and she is stuck inside of a ring of thorns that keep her from going outside of this little area that she's been confined to. And all that there is in there to eat are like berries and roots that she can forage for, and there is an old hollowed out tree that she can sleep in at night. And so for years, she sleeps in this tree and eventually her golden clothes from being up in heaven grow tattered and worn and fall completely off of her and she's clothed and covered by her long hair. So for multiple years, she stays down here in the desert. It says a few in the story, so we can imagine she's probably in her late teens or early 20s um, as the story moves on. And all she has to eat are the berries and roots. All she has for clothes are her hair and this hollow tree to sit in during the winter. Out of the blue, a king goes on a hunting trip through the desert, and he finds this batch of thorns, and a wounded deer has jumped over the hedge and is inside of the thicket. So the king takes out his sword and he cuts down the thorns that the princess can't get through, or not the princess, that the young girl can't get through. And he finds the young lady covered in her hair, and she has been struck dumb by the Virgin Mary. So far, she hasn't had anyone to talk to, but when the king comes and asks her his name, she's unable to respond. And so he thinks that she's so beautiful and is terribly mistreated being trapped out here in the desert. So he takes her on his horse and he takes her home and he clothes her in, in beautiful clothes and gives her stuff to eat, but she can't explain what happened to her. And so eventually he asks if she'd like to marry him and she nods her approval and they're married. Awesome. Things are looking up for the girl, right? Well, a year later, she has her first child. It's, it's a little boy. And the Virgin Mary comes down on the night that the child is born and says, if you repent of your sin and admit that you opened up the 13th door, you can go on living in happiness here in the kingdom and I'll restore your voice. But if you deny that you did it, I will take your young boy to live with me up in heaven instead. And the queen has restored her voice long enough to say, frick you, Virgin Mary, I didn't do anything wrong. You'll never catch me alive. And the Virgin Mary takes the young boy and up to heaven they go. <laughs> The next day, the people of the kingdom are not so happy because they were promised a young prince and now suddenly there's no baby. And so they turn on the queen and they say that she's a man-eater and a cannibal and uh, somebody who would kill their own child. And the king is like, no, she's too beautiful and lovely. There's no that way that she would do that. So for the first year, the king defends her. The second year, she has another child, a son. Again, the Virgin Mary comes down and says, all you have to do is repent and your previous son this son and your voice are all all will be restored to you and the queen says nope i didn't do it you'll never catch me alive <laughs> and so the second child is taken up into heaven and again the people call to the king and say she's a man-eater and a child killer you must judge her for her crimes we cannot go on living with a queen like this and it becomes so bad that the king tells his counselors on pain of death that they need to shut their traps about the queen because she's innocent. And so another year goes by. And finally, the queen has a daughter this time. And the Virgin Mary shows up for the third time and says, if you'll but admit that you opened up the 13th door of heaven, you'll have your daughter, and not only that, but your two sons as well, returned to you, and your voice. And you'll be able to live happily with the king. All you have to do is repent. And the queen is allowed to speak, and she says, nope, I'll never, never admit to that. Um, I didn't do it. And so the queen takes the third child, the daughter, up into heaven. The queen still has no voice, 
And finally, the outrage of the people is too much, and the king has to put the queen on trial for the missing children. And she's condemned to death by burning at the stake. So, that's lovely. (laughs) And as the fires are lit around her and about to consume her, she thinks in her heart, if only I could confess to the Virgin Mary what I had done before I die, that uh, that would be my final wishes here before I die, as I am burning alive. And her voice is restored to her. The Virgin Mary comes out of the dark clouds above her, and she says, I opened up the 13th door. It was me all along. And the Virgin Mary says, this is enough. And rain falls from heaven, puts out the fire, and the three children are magically transported down from heaven to the feet of the queen and restored to the people. And her voice is restored to her on top of that so she can explain what happened to the kingdom. And she lives happily ever after with her two sons and her daughter, and no consequences after, I think, seven (laughs) opportunities to admit that she lied. Yeah. So there you go. There's the tale of Our Lady's Child. What do you think? It was wild. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know what to think. What's the moral of the story supposed to be? I think the moral of the story is that no matter how many times you lie about something... God is always going to, like, listen to you when you repent type of a deal. But there's also, like, this dark underlying, it's okay to leave your children out in the woods if you don't have enough money to pay for their meals type thing. Which is horrible because at the time, people legitimately were starving and poor enough that they had to leave their children out in the woods. And so it's kind of appalling that we would have a tale that addresses that at all. But, uh, here we are. It's wild. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy. Virgin Mary, main character. (laughs) All right, you ready for the next one? I think this one you may have a few more comments on because it's a little more interesting. Um, It's it's still outlandish, but it's, uh, well, you'll see. There's a little bit more going on here, I think, to talk about than just, oh my gosh, the Virgin Mary is real in heaven and what's going on. So this is the story of the youth who went forth to learn what fear was. That's the title. Story of the youth who went forth to learn what fear was. And it starts off, and there's a father, and he has two sons. And one is a smart and sensible son, and he can do everything. He's a hard worker, and he earns his keep around the house. And the other is a younger and stupid son, and he cannot learn anything at all. And so the people who see these two sons say to the father, well, there's a fellow talking about the younger son who will give his father trouble. So it's kind of well known that this kid is a dunce, I guess. And that's the beginning of the tale. And when anything was to be done, it was always the older son who goes out and does it, right? And, and he's the responsible one. He's the one who uh, is putting in the work. But at nighttime, or when he has to pass through the uh, churchyard where the dead people are buried, or anything creepy happens, the older son refuses to do it. And he says, I won't do it because it's scary. And when they tell each other ghost stories at night, it's the older son who shudders and is afraid of these tales, right? And the younger son listens to these stories and sees the young older and sees the older son unwilling to go through the graveyard at night and says what's the problem what's there to be scared of i don't what is shuddering that you guys are all talking about because it describes them being scared of these uh, stories as like the flesh creeps and they shudder at the thought and the younger son is like how do i learn how to shudder what is that and so Finally, one day, the father says, I cannot keep you, younger son. You are not earning your keep. You have no skills. I shall let you off into the world so that you can try and learn your own way. And so he gives him, let's see here, what's the amount? I believe it's 50 farthings is what it's called. 
Um, so he gives him a little coin purse full of money. And the younger son says, thank you, father. I will learn how to shudder and how to be scared. And the father says, that's not a very useful skill, but go for it. That's fine. Just don't tell anybody that you're my son because I'm too ashamed of you. Oh, and I should say, there's this interesting line where the older son smiles at the younger son about to go out into the world, and he says, he won't learn anything. He who wants to be a sickle must bend himself early. He thinks it's already too late for the younger son to do anything with his life. Nevertheless, the younger son goes out into the world. He's got a bag of money on his side. For this first bit of the journey, the father actually does give him a little bit of guidance. He sends him to a sextant, uh, somebody who makes maps, I believe. And he's like, learn from this guy what you can. And the young son says, I want to learn how to shudder. And the sextant says, oh, don't worry, that can be arranged. So at midnight, the young boy is told to go up into the bell tower and ring the bell. The sextant goes up into the tower ahead of the kid, covers himself in a white sheet, and stands in the corner as if he's a ghost. And the young boy goes up to ring the bell, sees the ghost in the corner, and cries out to him, Who are you? And what are you doing here? And he's not scared at all. Of course, the sexton does not reply. He's trying to be a ghost. And so three times, the young boy cries out to this ghost, Who are you? What's your purpose here? And if you don't reveal yourself, I'm going to push you down the stairs. And Sexton does not reply, and so the young boy charges him and pushes him down the stairs, and then rings the bell for midnight and goes back to bed and falls asleep right away. No problem, right? Doesn't matter. Just push man downstairs. Totally cool. Well, the Sexton's wife thinks to herself that it has been quite a while before the Sexton, like, he should have been back by now. And so she goes up into the tower, and she checks on him, and, of course, he's in a pile at the bottom of the stairs because the young boy pushed him down the stairs, and he has a broken leg, which is quite unfortunate. And so she runs and tells the young boy's father that he's a good-for-nothing boy who pushed her husband down the stairs and broke his leg. He needs to send him elsewhere. And the father's like, fine, fine. I guess it didn't work out here, so I'll send him elsewhere. And so that's what they do. Oh, and I should mention... The father is, like, scared of the younger son now. He didn't realize, like, he was that strong, I guess, and could push somebody down the stairs. And so he he says that, uh, what are these wicked tricks to the young boy for pushing the man down the stairs? And he says the devil must be in his head. So there you go. That's why this young man threw this guy down the stairs. And, of course, the young man says, Father, father, why would you say that of me? I gave the ghost three chances before I threw him down the stairs to reveal himself. And he did not, and so it's his fault. And the father's like, fine, that's all well and good, but you cannot be in my sight. Don't tell anybody that you're my son. Go out into the world and figure this out yourself. And so the boy does. He walks down the highway, and he mutters to himself over and over, if only I could learn to shudder. That is the skill that I seem to lack. A man finds him on the highway, and it just so happens that they're passing near a hanging tree, and there are seven dead men hanging from this tree. And this man sees this young boy mourning the fact that he cannot shudder, and he says, here's an opportunity to win some money. And so he goes up to the boy and he says, if you have any money, give it to me and I shall teach you how to shudder. And the boy says, ah, no worries, I have 50 farthings in my purse. If you shall but teach me how to shudder, they are yours. So the man takes him to the hanging tree, shows him the seven dead men, and says, stay here under the tree all night. And if in the morning you haven't learned to shudder, keep the money. Otherwise, give it to me. And the boy is like, fair enough. I'll spend all night underneath the hanging tree. 
and I'll learn how to shudder. So he builds himself a little fire, and he looks up at the hanging tree with seven dead skeletons in it, and he thinks to himself, man, it is cold outside, and I bet those dead men wailing around in the wind in the dead of night are cold as well. So he climbs up the tree, cuts down the dead men, and sets them around his fire with him, and says, warm yourselves by the fire, this shall be nice. And they're dead, and so they don't say anything. And uh, the embers from the fire blow out of the fire pit and begin to light the dead men on fire. And the young boy is like, You fools! You're burning! Why would you let that happen to yourself? Put out the fire at once! And the dead men, of course, don't respond and continue to burn. And so he has no choice but to grab them and rehang them up in the tree. <laughs> Come morning, the dead men are back up in the tree, but with singed clothes. <laughs> And the young boy has not learned how to shudder. And so the highwayman comes upon the boy and says, So, did you learn how to shudder? Where's my 50 farthings? And the boy says, No, but those men up there are pretty stupid, and they let their clothes be burned at night when I tried to warm them up. And the man is like, Never mind, keep the money, <laughs> and leaves. <laughs> so, the first trial, or I should say the second trial, is overcome. The first one wasn't really much of a trial, it was just a guy in a sheet, but here we are, hanging dead men at night. Um, a little bit more of a trial. So the second trial is overcome, and the, uh, the boy continues on down the road. Eventually, he finds a wagoneer who takes him further down the road, and the wagoneer is like, I know a place where they can teach you how to shudder. shudder. So he takes him to an inn, and there at the inn there's a host, and the host has this tale that he tells people about learning how to shudder and earning great riches because of it. Apparently, there's a haunted castle nearby, and the king has decreed that anybody who can sleep in the castle for three nights and survive gets all the gold that's in the castle, and not only that, but the hand of his daughter in marriage. And so the young boy sounds like, okay, nobody else has survived this castle so far, although many have tried. I shall attempt to sleep three nights in this castle, and surely I will learn how to shudder. And the host, like, doesn't want to tell him this at first because he thinks that the kid is actually kind of good looking and he's afraid that he'll die. But the kid eventually gets the information from him. Um, and so the king is alerted that this boy wants to try the challenge. And so the king says, ah, you are going to attempt this challenge. What three items would you like to bring into the castle with you to try and free it from the uh, evil spirits that live there? And the boy says, I will ask for a fire a turning lathe, and a cutting board with a knife. And so those three things are granted to him by the king. And the boy goes to the uh, castle, sets up his fire, his lathe, his cutting board, and his knife, and prepares to spend the first night. As the first night um, opens up, as the sun sets and the moon begins to rise, the boy lights his fire and sits on a bench and moans to himself, oh, if only I could shudder. And out of the darkness of the castle, he hears, Amoy, how cold we are. And the boy says, you simpletons, what are you crying about? I have a fire here. Come warm yourselves by the fire. So out of the blackness come two great black cats. And with a tremendous leap, they suddenly appear next to the fire. And they look savagely at the boy with fiery eyes. And they begin to warm themselves. And they ask the boy, would you like to play cards with us? And the boy is like, perhaps. Show me your paws first. And so they outstretch their paws, and they have long claws and talons in their paws. And the boy is like, that will not do. And so he grabs both the cats by the throat, slaps them onto the cutting board, and screws their paws to the cutting board. And he's like, I do not look like the looks of the talons on your feet. <laughs> and so he kills them both with the knife that was given to him with the cutting board. 
And when they're dead, he throws them into the pond in the middle of the castle. <laughs> Do you have any comments so far? I, uh, I'm just, I'm just struggling to keep. I don't know. The story is just so. <laughs> it, you know, when you go onto like a first grade playground and the kids are just like making up stuff, yeah, and, like just like ab- ab- absurd things. That's what this feels like. It feels just oh, like dude. so weird and random. It's totally crazy. Like these cats, they're like. Yeah, let's play cards together. And the kid's like, nah, you have wicked looking claws. I'm just going to kill you instead. <laughs> so he just stabs him to death on his cutting board. This is like no big deal. Just grabs him by the neck and boom, slap, slap. Two cats gone. Anyway, that's only the first part of the night. We still have the rest of night one to go. And then two more nights after this. So he's killed these two crazy looking cats with scary claws. And so he... Uh, Sits down next to the fire again, and uh, he's getting ready to fall asleep. He's beginning to shut his eyes. But then suddenly out of every hole and corner of the castle, dogs and cats who are attached to red-hot flaming chains of iron come streaming out and running all over the castle. And they're creating such a wind and a mess that they're beginning to blow out the kid's fire. And he's like, this shall not do. And so he takes his cutting knife... And he stands over his fire, and he cuts down any of the cats or dogs that come close to the fire. And by the end of the night, he has a pile of bodies all around him, and the ghosts have gone back into hiding. And so he throws all of those carcasses into the pond. And he's about to go to sleep for the last, like, hour of the night. (laughs) When a bed runs up to him and is like, would you like to sleep? And the kid's like, oh yeah. Absolutely, I'm totally tired from defending my fire all night. So the kid jumps into the bed, wraps himself in the blanket, and the bed begins to sprint itself around the castle. And it's sprinting so fast that it covers every square inch in, like, minutes. And then the boy calls out to the bed, This is fine, but you should try going faster. (laughs) To which the bed responds by flipping on its top and trying to smother the boy underneath it. The boy, of course, kicks the covers off of himself, crawls out from underneath the bed, leaves it there squirming, and is like, that was unfortunate. You should have been able to go faster, and I am incredibly dismayed. My day's ruined. And he goes back up to the fire and sits down, and so the first night passes. In the morning, the king comes, expecting to find a corpse. But there he sees the boy laying on the ground sleeping, and he's like, surely the spirits have killed him. And the boy hears that and is like, what? No, absolutely not. What? What did you think happened that night? And he says that he's quite ready for the next few nights, and that nothing of consequence happened during the night when he describes what happens to the king. And the king is like, great, everybody else has died doing what you just did, but if you think nothing happened, that's fine. Let's get this enchanted castle's curse broken and done with. And so the kid goes to the innkeeper to spend the day, and the innkeeper is like, oh my gosh, you're still alive? And the kid's like, oh yeah, absolutely. Don't worry about it. I didn't learn how to shudder, though, so that was very disappointing. And the innkeeper's like, well, there's always night two, I guess. And so night two begins, and the boy goes back to the castle, hunkers down, and gets ready to spend the night. First thing, the boy is complaining about not knowing how to shudder. In response to this, half of a corpse falls out of a chimney and crawls over to the side of the fire, begins to warm itself. And the boy is like, hello, how are you doing? At which the second half of the corpse falls out of the chimney and goes and joins the first half of the corpse. And they begin to talk to the boy. And uh, 
They just talk for a second. The boy is like, here, let me blow up the fire for you so that you're more comfortable and warm. And I believe the corpse tries to stitch itself together. And there is a frightful man sitting there next to the fire once the corpse is done stitching itself together. And he tries to take the young boy's seat next to the fire. And the boy's like, this was not part of our bargain. I blew up the fire for you. You have no need to take my seat. And so he pushes the guy off of his bench. And uh, a bunch more corpses fall out of the chimney in response to this. And they take off all of their limbs. And they set them up in a V shape so that they can play uh, bowling. They call it nine pins in the in the book, but it's basically bowling. And then they take off their skulls to use as bowling balls. And the kid's like, ah, this is going to be a great game. And so he takes his turning lathe, and he puts the skulls in it, and he turns them so that they're round and will be able to roll down the passageway of the castle easier, right? And so he joins the, these corpses in playing nine pins, and he bets some of his money on the nine pins games and he says that he loses a couple of farthing during the night which i don't know how you lose money after you've taken these dead men's skulls and like turned them yourself into like the proper bowling balls but like that's neither here nor there but he uh, he bowls with these guys all night all he loses is a couple of farthings in the bet and uh and that's it they just leave at the end of the night and then the king comes and says so how are you doing what happened during the night and the kid's like, oh, I just bowled all night. It was a blast. Had some fun, met some corpses, lost a little bit of money. No big deal. I had a blast. And the king's like, did you learn how to shudder, though? And the kid's like, no, I played games all night. What are you talking about? Like, why would I learn how to shudder? Meanwhile, the corpses are crawling back up the chimney. <laughs> Nothing to worry about, I'm sure. And so the third night begins to, uh, to settle. And uh, tall six men come into the castle, and they bring a coffin with them. And the boy thinks to himself, ah, that is certainly my little cousin who recently died. And so he goes to the coffin, and he opens it up, and there's a dead body inside. And he's like, wow, this guy is cold. What happened to him? And so he goes over to the fire, and he tries to warm up the corpse inside the coffin. It doesn't work. And so he remembers the bed that's down in the castle that he tried to ride the other night. And so he grabs the bed, he brings it upstairs, and he jumps into bed with the corpse. And he puts the blanket on top of both of them, and he's like, surely this will warm up the corpse. And it does. And so now the corpse is alive again. The corpse turns out to not be the, the young boy's cousin, and he's quite dismayed to see that. And instead of uh, this happy reunion, he's like, well, screw you, because you're not who I thought you were. And he shoves the dead body back in the coffin, and the uh, six men who brought the coffin with them to begin with turn around and march back out of the castle and take the coffin with them. That's the end of that. After that, an old man in tattered rags, who is very tall, lumbers into the castle. And he walks right up to the youth, and he says, You wretch, I shall soon teach you how to shudder, lest you die. And the boy is like, Ah... Don't worry about it. Nobody else who's said that they'll teach me how to shudder has, has come through with their promise, right? And the fiend replies, Softly, softly, don't talk so big or strong, for you are surely not either of those things. And the boy responds and says, I bet I'm stronger than you. And so the old man with the wispy beard and tattered clothes says, Then I have a challenge for you. And he takes the young boy down into the blacksmith shop of the castle. And there is an anvil sitting on the ground. 
and he takes an axe in his hands, and he hits the anvil so hard, it is sunk into the ground to the top of the anvil. And the young boy is like, I can do that. And so he takes the axe, and he takes a second anvil next to the first one, and he strikes it, and he strikes it so hard and so fast that he catches the old man's beard, splits the anvil in half, and pins the axe that's wrapped around the old man's beard inside the anvil to the ground. And the anvil is stuck all the way in the ground. And so he's caught this old man, and the old man is like, how did you do that? That's completely impossible. Nobody else has done this before. Release me at once, and I shall give you all of the gold and riches that are in the castle, so long as you give one-third of it to the poor, one-third of it to the king, and keep the last third for yourself. And the kid's like, sounds like a fair bargain, and wrenches the axe out of the anvil, releasing the old man's beard and freeing him to run off into the night. And so that morning, the king comes to the castle, and here's the kid sitting on a pile of gold next to his fire. And the king says, so did you learn how to shudder? And the young boy is like, nope, but this old man came and gave me all this gold. And the king is like, well, it's yours and also my daughter because that's the three knights and you survived and the castle is no longer enchanted, right? And so the young boy gets married to the king's daughter. They have this nice little wedding. But the boy continues to complain that he doesn't know how to shudder. And eventually his new queen gets tired of this. And so she commands one of the servants and says, go to the river and fill a bucket full of ice-cold water and what are they called? Gudgeons. G-U-D-G-E-O-N-S. And apparently gudgeons are like minnows in Germany or something like that. So she fills a pail of ice-cold water and small little fish. And during the night, the queen gets out of the bed and the servant comes up and throws the pail of ice-cold water and live fish on the prince, the young boy, who has not learned how to shudder. And the cold fish flip and flop on this boy as the cold water soaks into the bed. And he wakes up and says, oh, what makes me shudder so? And then he sees the fish and realizes that he's learned what shuddering is. And from that moment on, he lives in peace and quiet with his new queen and all the riches of the ca- like haunted castle that he freed. And that's the end of this book. <laughs> Dude, just an absolute fever dream from start to finish. It's actually one of the craziest tales in here that I've read so far. Like, some of the tales have, like, a moral or, like characters that are like kind of understandable you know like things happening in them this one's just like no frick you there's a kid who doesn't know what fear is and beats every coast in the country to figure it out with cold fish at the end <laughs> i'm not I'm, i don't what's the moral of this what's the point i don't know what there, is to be learned here <laughs> i don't think that there is anything to be learned here Except that some fears are, like, maybe, like, made up in your mind because, like, the ghost story one with, like, the sexton dressing up in the quilt. I don't know. Or, like, the dead men, like, not actually doing anything. Like, why would you be scared of dead men? I don't know. I I honestly don't know if there is, a sto- like, a moral to this story because the tale ends with the prince saying, ah, this is what it is to shudder. That's it, and it doesn't say like this was a good thing for him or anything because he's already married the princess and he's already rich from all the gold. So like, learning to shudder was like the least of his worries at that point. I don't even know. It's a weird one. It could just be that it's meant to be like a funny, entertaining tale because a bunch of the stuff that does happen in it is quite absurd. But like, I, like I don't know how you come up with a story like this. Mushrooms. 
that's the only explanation. Like someone was walking through the German forest, picked the wrong mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, and ate him and was like, "What if you didn't know how to be afraid?" And made up this psychotic tale with this kid who's like dumb as a box of rocks. Well, there you go. There are the two craziest Grimm's fairy tale tales that I've heard so far in my reading of the original Grimm's complete fairy tales. If you guys are enjoying this series and want to hear more Grimm's fairy tales, definitely let us know. We'll probably be doing more anyway because this has been a ton of fun. If you want to reach out to the podcast, you can tweet us at plus one to intel with two L's. You can send us a uh, message on Instagram at plus one to intelligence. And you can send us an email. It's probably the most reliable way at plus one to intel at gmail.com. There's only one L. And the number two is going to be the two in all of those in all of those addresses. So definitely reach out. We love to hear from you guys and look forward to more Grimm's fairy tales in the future. I promise that not all of them are going to be quite this crazy, but there are some definite bangers out there. So stay tuned for the next one. Until then, my name's Noah. And I'm Sim. And you've been listening to the Plus One to Intelligence podcast. Before we stop the recording, I really thought I was going to have more to add. And then I just <laughs> sat there and like I was just like so confused by the way the story was going. Just I just didn't even know like what questions do I even ask? <laughs> yeah, like what? What am I supposed what? to add here? Are you sure what you're telling me is what the book said? Oh, yeah. I'm like reading it right now. Like, like I'm watching exactly... you read the book and I'm sitting here just like. I, I, I'm making a lot of like facial expressions. I'm very emotive, but I don't have the words to describe what I'm feeling. So No, see, I don't even blame you because like reading those for the first time, I was like, how do I explain to anybody like what I'm reading right now? Like, oh yeah, I'm reading a tale about how this girl gets dumped in the forest by her family, infanticide, and uh, the ger- like the German version of ver- like... Ver- virgin mary shows up and it's just like yo dog it's cool you can live in heaven with me and then she lies and gets kicked out of heaven and like what and like some kid who doesn't so... know how to be afraid so he like kickboxes an entire castle full of like ghosts it feels like one of those random stories you know those like um what are they called those sheets that you fill out in like middle school and it's like there's blanks in the like story that you have oh, to fill in. Oh yeah, like an ad lib. It feels like an ad lib. Yeah, it feels like like so random and weird. It is. It's that's the weird thing. Like in some of the previous stories that we've gone over, there have been like a, a moral to the story. There's like a reason that the story was told. Like in such is the way of the world. Don't go into business with people who are obviously your enemies. Type stuff, right? And this, it's just like, eh, don't be scared of stuff, I guess. Like, I don't really know what to take out of this right now. I don't know if there is anything to take out of this. I think it's just a funny story. Which is cool, but like, oh my gosh. This is a weird way of telling a funny story. This is like a funny (laughs) horror story. This is like... (laughs) Yeah. I guess this would have been a funny story back in like the Dark Ages. Oh, yes, and then a corpse stitched himself back together and went bowling with his head using his limbs as the pins. Isn't that hilarious? What yeah. an absurd tale. Oh, okay. I mean, like, I feel like there's a little bit more, like, like something why? is not what, what dead happened? people. <laughs>
Yeah, like, you can't just have a bunch of corpses fall out of a chimney and then play nine pins for no reason. Like, why are, why are they in the chimney? Obs- why are they dead? What? what is their obsession with bowling? Like, <laughs> what? He turns their heads into, like, he lathes their heads into, like, better bowling balls. And yeah. they just chill with it. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, that's permanent like, disfigurement. How do you place a bet against a dead person do, on do they nine have money? pins with limbs right like what is the dead person going to do with his money how are they bowling like what limbs are they using as pins and what limbs are they using to bowl if Sorry? they're using their heads is it just like a torso just like Standing floating there? there just like what <laughs> so is it he keeps one leg and one arm and then right. rolls his head from the torso okay yeah, I, I, just, I don't know i just i really feel like someone ate the wrong mushrooms in the forest and then yeah, this is what happened. And somehow we got this tale out of it.